Hey everybody, this is Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. And I'm Paige Wesley. And with us we have... Andrea Cassetta! Yay! Yay! And we have got a great episode for you. So great, love it. Um, This is one of, this is a really fun one. Honestly, I, I think I'm going to say it right here, it might be one of my favorites. This is really fun. It was so fun to research. Like, I, I think I texted you a few days ago as I was like finishing putting together the outline and i was just like this is the most fun i've had in a long time (laughs) right now we're in the very fun parts of it and i i cannot enjoy it enough uh it's just so great Uh, but before we get into it we have some news and reviews the news is that we are going to be a part of rooster teeth's rtx It is normally a live event that happens in Texas, but this year it is happening virtually for very obvious reasons. Um, And we are going to be a part of a true crime podcast panel on September 18th at 3.30 Central Time, 1.30 Pacific Time. Um, It's going to be awesome. We're going to be talking all about the ins and outs of making a true crime podcast with two other great shows, Red Web and Black Box Down. For more information on the event as a whole, you can go to rtxevent.com. That's rtxevent.com, all one word. But what we need from y'all is to send us some cool questions. If you have a question about anything that we do through the process of making the show, uh, from researching to recording to what we think we can and can't talk about to putting it out, etc. Whatever, any behind-the-scenes question that you have, you can email it to us by putting RTX question in the subject line and sending it to cultpodcastshow at gmail.com or by sending it to us on Instagram at cultpodcast or Twitter at cultpodcastshow. Uh, we'll be answering your questions live, and um, I, I super cannot wait for this event. It is going to be so, 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 so much fun. That is this Friday, September 18th. Um, and then the other thing we have is a five-star review. <laughs> this one comes to us from... <laughs> I didn't vet this beforehand, but it comes to us from Popcorn Soda. Which sounds Yummy. like it was made exclusively for Andrea Gazetta. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm pretty sure that Jones Soda makes a popcorn flavor. They, they, you know what? I think you're right. This one comes to yeah. us from Jones Soda Company. And they say, <laughs> they say you're not supposed to drink the Kool-Aid? Wow. Oh. This podcast changed my life. I was drinking the Kool-Aid daily. It was all Kool-Aid all the time. And when Paige told me to not drink the Kool-Aid, my life changed forever. I've stopped drinking Kool-Aid and my skin is clear. I can run a 5K and I just found $10 on the ground. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely arguing. Is this because I run while listening to cult podcasts? Of course not. It's clearly because of my Kool-Aid related life changes. Thank goodness for cult podcasts. But for reals, good podcasts, great hosts, and Andrea is a dope artist, and Mondo's voice is just so nice to listen to. Aww. Thank you so uh, much. Seriously, though, did Bert Kreischer write that? Because <laughs> I don't know if you know, but on a podcast a couple months ago, he revealed that he drinks two gallons of Kool-Aid a day. Jesus! No. Yes! No, no sir! Is he I, sick? Yeah. Does he have all the diabetes? Uh, Apparently, I mean, uh, he says no, but like two gallons of Kool-Aid a day. I've just that realized, real. you know why I hate Jello so much? is because it's just solid Kool-Aid. That's what it See, is. I really enjoy Jello, but I also enjoy like flavored sodas and stuff and can't drink them all the time because I'm an, a, an adult yeah. who wants to live past, you know, 40 or whatever. 
Um, but Jello is typically sugar-free, and you know, sometimes it, it scratches that itch. Oh man! Well, I think without any further ado, let's get into the show. Hello. 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 Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> vroom vroom. <laughs> <laughs> For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm. Organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership. Organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers. Organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships. And organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits, and as always... These are our opinions. Thank you for tuning in to Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Torres. And with us we have... Andrea Cassetta! Yay! And it's my week! I'm so excited. This is the start of a series that I have wanted to do for two plus years at this point. And we kept bumping it for other stuff, understandably so. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in doing so, I think we ended up putting this series in like the best possible place because this group really exemplifies the disillusion with the American dream. Yeah, (laughs) baby. If there's a thesis statement for this group, it is what if the American dream sucks? That, That is essentially their ethos. Um, and you know, as the sky is on fire and we're all dying of a pandemic, gotta agree a bit. <laughs> I do love that thought process of just somebody being like, "There's two things I love in this world: my Harley Davidson and communism." Damn right, brother. <laughs> Not so much that as much as they're like, "Man, who wants to live in a picket fence house with 2.5 kids when you could live on the road?" and <laughs> I mean, really, they're more prepared for the Mad Max future we're headed for than anybody else, really. Uh, I think these are the people who would literally own two and a half kids. Like, that's... (laughs) (laughs) I cut this one in half and he's metal now. (laughs) We got the half one so that we don't have to feed it as much. Um, He's a boy from the torso up, but from the bottom down, he's one of those little carts that sits on the side of a motorcycle. He's from the bottom down. He's just like a robot spider. It's hard to explain. <laughs> we built it out of a rector set. We get bored sometimes. Um, He's half Roomba. Oh my god! Perfect half person. A room baby, if you will. A yes. room baby. I would be down for a room baby because it's like, hey, less to feed and floors so clean. <laughs> I like yeah. That. Although I like- he keeps hitting his head on the bottom of the table, so that's a problem. <laughs> Oh, oh, no. I like that you're insinuating if you had a half Roomba baby, you wouldn't have to feed it as much because it would make up for the sup. It would supplement in the trash that it was sucking in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like composting. Yeah, you you like feed it Cheerios, but then it also picks up the extra Cheerios from the floor. It's kind of like my my cat where I found him eating just a discarded chunk of cheese. And I'm like, I don't know where this came from. And then I had to ask Jake and he was like, oh, I threw that away like a day ago where apparently the cat had managed to pull like a chunk 
like an old part of a block of cheese out of the trash and then had stashed it under a cabinet to just like snack on it when I wasn't looking. I mean, is this this cat is my long lost brethren, I think. Yeah. Because what you're telling me is that you already have a room baby. Cats, the original room baby. And now with buttholes. <laughs> Unlike the movie, release the butthole cut. I think Dune is doing double time on buttholes where it's like, well, if cats isn't going to show the truth, we are. Um, Every worm has eight anuses. <laughs> All right. So this group is one of those groups that a lot of people would be like, that's not a cult. But I'm going to point to our episodes on the Latin Kings, uh, the Bloods and the Crips and the KKK to basically say that any group taken to extremes can exemplify a cult. Agreed. Yeah. Like, remember that Serge Bengay and shit started as him giving like tennis lessons. So like anything can become (laughs) a cult if you try hard enough. Yeah, Tennis lessons and then like. Mind if I rub your pussy? Like that. <laughs> like, you mind if I go down under? <laughs> uh, yes. I'm named annoying. after a pretty good soda. <laughs> That's not a wife. This is a wife. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's not even an episode about him. He's not even related, but yes. Anytime a group starts to have it's sort of its own culture, but also like it's hard to leave. Their views are extreme. Like that's when it's, yeah. hey, I think this is a cult. And that's yeah. kind of my point is just like anything can start out uh, relatively okay. And I say relatively with heavy air quotes. <laughs> um, and then eventually turn into something just like ridiculously awful and terrible. Yeah. And essentially like, What this starts out as is more of like a fandom or an interest group. And then it takes a sharp, sharp turn. Sharp like cheddar. And switchblades. (laughs) And that's kind of where this group goes eventually. We're going to get to it more in the next couple episodes. But for this one, we're covering a lot of the history and the origins and how this point in history was kind of perfect for a group like this to come to be. Are you guys ready? So I'm ready. I'm so ready. Wait, let me All grab right. my switchblade. Hold on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so for sources, uh, a couple years back, or about a ten, about ten years ago, the History Channel actually did an entire series of like long documentaries about the Hell's Angels, and they're actually pretty good. Um, they're on YouTube for free, and it's in search of history, the Hell's Angels. Uh, there's also a very famous book by Hunter S. Thompson called Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga about essentially like a year that he spent traveling with them. Uh, there's a comprehensive article on one of the events that we're going to cover in today's episode by Life Magazine, and it's the Hollister Riot of 1947. And then <laughs> when all those Hell's Angels members drove to Hollister so they can get <laughs> oversized prints on their T-shirts. Yeah, just like real expensive cargo shirts shorts that smell like the perfume because they spray it in the store. Uh, There's also a Time Magazine article called A Brief History of the Hells Angels that was published a little over 10 years ago as well and it was pretty comprehensive also. And then finally we have teamgroupnames.com motorcycle club names. So classic motorcycle club names. That's going to be important later. Uh, Are you ready? So So ready. ready. All right, the year is 1945 in 
California. Ooh. At this point, most of the men who had fought in World War II returned to the United States to a hero's welcome. They returned to a wealth of jobs, uh, wildly affordable housing. Many of them had girls waiting for them or were easily able to meet uh, women. And they start developing track neighborhoods full of white picket fence houses, 2.5 kids, the whole nine. There seems to be plenty of work, plenty of homes. There's advances in technology, both in the home and in the professional world. As a whole, America seems to be wildly productive and incredibly successful coming out of the war. It actually revitalized our economy to a degree. Now, again, this is largely for white people. Uh, remember that Jim Crow laws are still very much in effect at this time. Uh, black people are moving from different parts of the country out into metropolises and kind of settling their own sections of those cities. This is not going to impact them all that much yet. Um, in the later episodes, we're going to see the essentially trajectory of how people of color survived this portion of history and how that clashes with how white people who are maybe not necessarily the affluent, successful white people clash in about 20 to 30 years from this point. And it's going to be kind of interesting to see where one group comes from and another group comes from and where they both end up at the same time. In large part, though, for most white people, particularly men returning from the war, they returned to a pretty peaceful country, sort of, because America was still pretty scared that the Cold War was going to happen. Uh, they were scared of communism, but they really, really, really treasured their kind of, quote unquote, peace and prosperity or what appeared to be peace and prosperity. And for those of you wondering, the Cold War was America and the Soviet Union kept trying, uh, threatening to get into a really big snowball fight where they were like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to come over to your mom's house and throw snowballs at you. I'm going to throw snowballs at Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where we found out that they were storing all those snowballs in Cuba. Um, but then they and melted. And it's warm. Yeah. yeah it's like it a bad a place to place. store them. Did you guys hear that we actually snuck a snowball into one of Fidel Castro's cigars? <laughs> We just, why is this cigar soggy? Uh, <laughs> the Cold War. So much like we talked about in our episodes about the KKK following the Civil War, many men who returned from the war were bored as shit with everyday <laughs> life because that's what happens when you're white and your life isn't in danger all the time. You kind of get bored when you don't get to shoot at people all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, that's such a fucking crazy sentiment. It's just like, man, things have been a lot more boring since I don't think I'm going to die every day. Yeah, like the most exciting shit was we bought a dishwasher, which is a new thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can understand, though. There are a lot of people that get sort of addicted to that adrenaline rush where you feel like when I am in a moment of peril, I feel most alive. And that when that starts to feel normal to you, not having that all the time is the other weird flip side of like PTSD of like your body has been conditioned to feel like 
that's what's normal. That's kind of how like when people have like very tumultuous relationships where they like fight and throw things at each other, they don't understand what a normal relationship is supposed to look like because that's their normal. Right. Exactly. Many of the men who returned from war had formed bonds with their fellow soldiers and they had lived a life of excitement and danger overseas. And returning back to a track house filled with TV dinners, chip and dips, and jello salads just wasn't going to cut it for them. <laughs> Speak for yourself, dude. That sounds pretty awesome. Ugh, jello salads. Oh, jello salads are the worst. I don't know what that is. Here, oh man, I do I have some things to disgust you. So, jello by itself, I got no beef. Love jello. But in the 1950s uh, and 60s, particularly, gelatin was kind of a new thing and it was almost kind of like a space age food <laughs> and it wasn't the only time that people had ever used gelatin gelatin's been around pretty much ever since we've been killing horses but um it was one of the first times that it became really really prevalent in cooking and so they started putting it in everything so they would have like a salmon jello yeah no. it's pretty gross yes, no. yes they would yeah. And you serve mm -hmm. it chilled. And that's why you have like, that's where in these like super fancy like jello dishes. Yeah, or like a ham jello. Yeah. Fuck? And these white guys yeah. thought their lives weren't in peril. If I saw <laughs> salmon jello, I'd be so terrified for my life. Because it's only a matter of time before you try to make a Henry jello. And then where do I go? So there was a a, a YouTube fad like three years ago where people tried to make some of these and one of the ones that got like widely done where like a ton of people made it was called the seven up salad and it was basically seven up mayonnaise and jello no what and it's disgusting and like you watch people try to eat it i'm like why why are you doing this Dude, were they like just fucking with this what are our grandparents like yeah we're gonna tell them we fucking ate this shit they're gonna try to make it it was the the fad it was the fad that was the thing uh, it was definitely the fad, kind of like in the 90s how moose was the fad. And remember, almost every adult smoked and had been smoking for years and smoked so often that they probably can't taste shit. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. So, that makes I a lot just, of sense. I don't know what kind of weird fucking things were like in 20 years they're going to be like, yeah, it's my grandma's recipe. They call it a, a TikTok jello and it's just a meme printed on food. Cloud bread and sous vide is what it's going to be because that's the stuff now that everyone wants. Like cloud bread particularly where it's basically eggs. It's not bread, but it, you can, it's anyway. But there's a handful of things that people are definitely going to look back on and be like, what the hell are we doing? Yeah, 50s cookbooks. My mom has some from you know our grandparents and stuff and it's just like weird jellos mayonnaise salad on every like mayonnaise everything everywhere and then everywhere. spam spam was big now here's the thing i think spam is kind of delicious in yeah. the right context spams but that's the thing is every white person who tells me they don't like spam hasn't tried it from a brown cook yes absolutely okay that is 100 percent true yeah Maybe. yeah but there's a reason that all the junk in your email folder is called spam so <laughs> That is that is true. No one um, loves it. Like I know. I mean, think that's true. That but is I don't true. know enough to fight because you on it. Because it's all spam. Is just the leftover garbage of the pig, as are your spam emails. It's all the leftover that's, garbage. That's not why it's named that way. 
Spam is essentially as if now that I think about it for a prolonged period of time, spam is essentially just pork gelatin, right? It just looks like jello made out of pig. No, I mean spam is just processed meat is all it is. So the name actually comes from a Monty Python sketch in which spam is ubiquitous, unavoidable, and repetitive. So it's not because it's the leftover portions of meat. It's because it's repetitive, annoying, and it's everywhere. So that makes sense. Yeah. I will say if you don't like spam, it's because you've never had a Hawaiian cook it for you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll give it mm-hmm. a shot. I'll give it a chance. Yeah. The first time I had spam was in Hawaii and I was just like, this is amazing. Why isn't everyone eating this all the time? And heart attacks is why. But yeah, it's also delicious. It's such a weird. You were like, why isn't everyone eating this all the time? And I was like, <laughs> for me and my childhood, it was like, I hate spam. Why is everyone eating this all the time? <laughs> well, I, as I said, it, I was like, why isn't everyone eating this all the time? Oh, because our grandparents did. And now they're dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, there's also something going on historically in the manufacturing world that factored in to this time frame. Motorcycles were originally put into production in the late 1800s, but they were very different from what we would picture as a motorcycle today. The 1860s saw some of the first motorized cycles, but they were steam powered. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes. Steam powered, which made them hard to ride without burning yourself. Yeah. Yeah, what? But also super impractical to maintain or ride longer distances because... (laughs) You had to keep the steam up. In large part, they were prototypes. They were not widely ridden because it was damn near impossible. Oh, fucking yeah. Every dude who rode an old school motorcycle basically just like hard boiled his nuts. Yes. (laughs) Now, the first widely produced internal combustion motorized vehicle like this was the Daimler Reitwagen. Bless you. Thank you. Uh, And that's Daimler as in Daimler Chrysler. So like... A company that's still around today. Um, Now, it's honestly more like what I would describe as a motor chariot or a motorized go-kart. Reitwagen means riding car. So it's almost more of like, have you ever seen those weird like roadsters that have like two wheels in the back, one wheel in the front? This kind of is coordinated like that it's very strange looking not at all what we would think of as a motorcycle it always blows my mind how every time you see a vehicle shaped like a triangle your brain tells you like no that's wrong that's wrong (laughs) no thank you and you should not be driving why are you on the freeway uh now (laughs) get your fucking get your tricycle out of here man (laughs) get your big wheels back into the hotel where it belongs and out of my freeway um now, right around the same time in England, the Butler petrol cycle was another motorized combustion engine bicycle. But again, this was a three-wheel go-kart type of vehicle. Also, it's got a weird name. The Butler petrol cycle sounds like yeah. you use a butler in your house, and then when they get too old, you turn them into oil. Into this, <laughs> I was going to say into the cycle where they're just like holding on to the wheels and you're riding <laughs> on their back. This version of man car is extra upsetting. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've created, this is Skin Car's ancestor. There you go. Now, in 1894, a company named Hildebrand and Wolfmuller became the first series production motorcycle 
and the first to be called a motorcycle, or in German, Motorrad, at the same time, Excelsior Motor Company, originally a bicycle manufacturing company based in England, began production of their first motorcycle model in 1896. So essentially, at this point, Germany and England are kind of in like a race to create the first motorcycle. <laughs> it's a motorcycle <laughs> cold war. It's the my nuts are hot war. Yes. Um, and at this point, the Hildebrand and Wolfmuller and the Excelsior Motor Company build two wheel models. So they're the first to introduce two wheel prototypes as opposed to the three. Um, and it is essentially a bicycle with a motor in the center of it. And that's the same thing with the one from Excelsior because they were a bicycle manufacturing company. So they just took one of their bikes and were like, what if we put an engine on this shit and see what happens? Um <laughs> I do like that they were basically fueled by the same muse that that made mansers. Like, what if, yeah. what if we just took our bicycle and put a motor in the center of it? Do you like wind and bugs in your face, but you don't like that stupid pedaling? <laughs> put a motor on it. What if we put lab coats on strippers? Um, <laughs> the mansers model. Well, it's got to work better than our last thing when we took a bunch of jello and put a motor in the side of it. <laughs> And flavored it like fish. People did not like it. (laughs) Now, two years later in 1898, the first motorcycle was produced in the United States. It was called the Orient Aster, built by Charles Metz at his own personal factory in Massachusetts. And like most things in the Industrial Revolution, everyone was racing to be the first and the best. And in America... And the UK, multiple companies sprung up, including, most notably, the US companies Indian, that's the name of their company, and Harley-Davidson by the early 1900s. Both of them got their big break in 1917 when a young man named Franz Ferdinand started the First World War and an indie band. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I don't think he started the World War by dying. I don't think that was a conscious decision he made. That's true. I mean, he the guy who shot him really kind of started. <laughs> During the First World War, motorcycles were incredibly useful, and they were perfect for traveling fast without the bulk of a full gas tank. They used less gas than the cars and Jeeps in general, and they were largely used to communicate between the front lines and the troops. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a metal horse, really. Yeah. yeah, well, and I think sometimes we forget that in 1917, phones and radio communication at the time were nothing like what we have now. And if you doubt that, they thought that yelling from a motorcycle was a better idea than trying to use Morse code <laughs> for quick messages. So motorcycles became widely used in the theater of war. Not so much recreationally at this point, but soldiers used them all the time. And by 1920, Harley-Davidson was the largest motorcycle manufacturer in the world, with dealers in 67 different countries, having benefited from many of the war contracts, not just for America, but other countries as well. I know you mean people that like, you know, like car dealerships, but the way that you phrased it, like a Harley dealer, just made me think of some guy. (laughs) Hey, man. Hey, hey, hey. You want to buy one of these motorcycles? He just opens his jacket. You want to buy a motorcycle? (laughs) Motorcycle. No? Okay. And then he drags it away because he's got a full motorcycle underneath his jacket. But that would change in the 1930s. 
Suddenly, they had competition from a number of German companies as Hitler ramped up production of motorcycles in Germany. The company DKW, which is the modern-day Audi Corporation, suddenly became the world leader in motorcycle production. Just as motorcycles had been indispensable in World War I, they were perfected by World War II and were widely used on both sides. Both the Axis and the Allies manufactured thousands and thousands and thousands of motorcycles for the war. In fact, they had manufactured so many that by the time the war was over, they had thousands extra that were never even used, that just sat in factories because they had made that many motorcycles. We could have have just avoided so much death if instead of a war, it was just like whoever could do the sickest jump. It's funny you should say that because that does not bring about peace later in this story. Oh Oh my God, what? Once the war was over, the U.S. Army found itself with a surplus of motorcycles And they had to get rid of them somehow. So they sold them for dirt cheap. And I'm talking, you know, a couple hundred bucks maximum. In some cases, as low as like 50 to $60 for a motorcycle. Wow. And they could easily be modified or customized by your average mechanic. And remember, most of these men had worked in the war and were now back. Many of them were competent mechanics, and these motorcycles were the type that they were used to working on and maintaining. So people bought motorcycles by the thousands and started customizing them in their own homes. And it became kind of a source of pride to have a cool motorcycle. So in the late 1940s, Motorcycles became the cheapest form of transportation around. It was almost cheaper than riding public transportation to own a motorcycle. You're fucking me up by making me realize that motorcycle enthusiasts are just badass horse girls. Yes. Yes. That's all 100%. They they're, yeah. just, they're just metallic horse girls. And they're just like, yeah, that, mm-hmm. ooh, listen to her purr. Mm, that's a good girl. Well, and also, mm-hmm. if you uh, have insurance troubles because you've had too many DUIs, you can still have a motorcycle license and be insured under the motorcycle because the most person you can do damage to is yourself. That's wild. That changes later on. That's not the case at this point, but yes. Yeah. 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 At this point, they're almost completely unregulated. God. <laughs> yeah. Well, the worst part about owning a motorcycle <laughs> is that eventually one day you're going to have to take it out back behind the barn and just... <sighs> Turn it into gel- gelatin? Yeah, exactly. Turn it into half a Roomba, baby. You've revved for the last time... Skip, skipper. I don't. What do you skipper? name your motorcycle? <laughs> do you name your motorcycle? They probably do. I think they do. They usually give them female names. Yeah, Stella. This is Marlene. <laughs> this one's Agatha. She's an old broad. Sturdy. <laughs> She's mysterious. Meet my motorcycle, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Now, it's no wonder, given the amount of motorcycles just in circulation at the time and the fact that they were largely unregulated, you didn't even need a license at this point, um, that motorcycle culture just took off. After the war in 1945, there were approximately 200,000 motorcycles in the U.S., but by 1955, 10 years later, there were over a million. That's how fast it grew. And some of the original surplus bikes were still around at that point. You could usually get them for cheap. But 
Harley Davidson isn't stupid. And so after seeing how fast those surplus bikes sold, many of which were either a Harley Davidson or an Indian, they started to create newer models so that people who realized the popularity of those vehicles or had ridden a surplus bike and wanted to upgrade could buy a new Harley Davidson, which was still cheaper than a car and still largely unregulated and still very customizable. That's a thing even with motorcycles to this day, that they are a very customizable form of transportation and can easily be kind of customized and enhanced based on the rider's preference. So they began marketing them for the average person as opposed to soldiers. And they began marketing them as a fun outdoor activity as well as the cheapest mode of transportation around. Hey, do you like driving but hate being with your family? (laughs) (laughs) You're joking, but that's real. Hey, do you like the feeling of bees caught in your eye? (laughs) Real thing that's happened to my dad. Uh, My uncle one time ran over a plastic bag and it got stuck in his exhaust pipe. Oh, no. Shit. And I remember being at his house and seeing he had like kept it in a box and it was just like charred and black. It was the grossest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, And that is seared into my memory. So (laughs) And into the exhaust pipe, probably. And into the exhaust pipe, probably, yeah. Now, in the late 1940s, with the popularity of motorcycles, motorcycle clubs began to spring up all over the country as a means of companionship. In many cases, men would ride with their former army buddies or local former soldiers in their area. And they would go on long distance rides, race their bikes, and generally get thrills with their friends away from their boring day-to-day American dream life. And for many people, this was just a weekend release, something to blow off steam in between work weeks. But for others, they start to take it more seriously. And they start naming their clubs things like the Pissed Off Bastards and the Booze Fighters. And I have a huge list that we are going to go through at the end. <laughs> I can't wait. But the names are wild. The Jello Eaters. <laughs> the Jello Eaters. The Salmon Moose. <laughs> the Salmon. No. The Mayonnaise Salads. Some oh. of them got specific. They were like, fuck Kevin. <laughs> fuck Marjorie and her gelatin cookies. Um. <laughs> So in 1947, the AMA, or the American Motorcycle Association, holds a yearly event in Hollister. Now, they've been holding this event for 10 years, and it's called the Gypsy Tour Motorcycle Rally. It actually still takes place. Is this in Hollister, California? This is in Hollister, California. Oh, shit. Yeah. This rally was a place for motorcycle enthusiasts to converge, show off their tricks, and bike modifications. So this, like I said, still happens. They had a, uh, in 1997, they actually had a 50-year anniversary of the event that we're about to cover, even though it's considered like, quote-unquote, a riot. Um, But like, they still celebrate this event every single year. So in 1947, around 4,000 motorcyclists flooded into Hollister, almost doubling the population of the town at the time. They came from literally everywhere, all over California, which was a hub for motorcycle clubs, but even as far away as the East Coast or Florida. And approximately 10% of the attendees were women, which I thought was surprising, but is kind of interesting and cool for the time. 
the town was completely unprepared for the amount of people that arrived and literally no one and nowhere near as many people had participated in the event for the 10 years previous in part because a lot of those years took place during the war. So the only people able to come to the event were people who had fought in World War One and had motorcycles from World War One, but weren't fighting in World War Two. if that makes sense. Yeah. So initially, the motorcyclists were welcomed into the local bars and businesses because the influx of people meant a huge boom in business. But they weren't ready for what was about to happen because there was a severe housing problem. There was just nowhere for all of these people to stay. Bikers had to sleep on sidewalks, in parks, in haystacks, and in some cases just on people's lawns. That's And not necessarily people they knew. Just like, yeah. How do you pick the lawn that you stay on? How do you, which, which, how do you, what's the process? I would hope that you walk up to someone and say, hey, do you mind if we sleep on your lawn? I'll pay you X amount of money. But I think also <laughs> if a bunch of bikers just show up and lay down on your lawn, are you going to move them? Haha, <laughs> that's, yeah. th- that's the yeah, trick that's that true. I have, Cap'n. I live in Los Angeles. We don't have a lawn. There you go. By July 4th, basically that, that weekend of the event, there was concern that the local bars would run out of alcohol completely. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, The city was described as being virtually out of control. And according to Life magazine, uh, members specifically of the Pissed Off Bastards, one of the motorcycle clubs. They sound fun. Yeah. Well, they grew pretty tired of the tamer events of the weekend and decided it was time that they had a little more fun. (laughs) So they, along with a handful of other clubs, start drunkenly racing down the main street in town. And this is in the middle of the day during normal town traffic at a time when there are double the amount of people in town. And they are 12 sheets to the wind. They were fighting, damaging bars and businesses, throwing beer bottles out of windows, hitting people below without them realizing there was a beer bottle coming their way. They caused thousands of dollars in damage to the cars around them as they were racing, as well as some furniture that was on the sidewalks. Because when they couldn't race in the streets, they would just race on the sidewalks. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the housing issue also meant that some people were sleeping on those sidewalks. So it was extremely dangerous. And because they were completely trashed while riding, when people would try to stop them, some of the members of the gang just started flashing their dicks. <laughs> oh, my God. That this is, is like... so hard to do. <laughs> Especially with all that leather on. <laughs> well, the leather comes a little bit later. I'd assume they're dressed mostly in denim. Yes, it's a, it's a lot of jeans. Because um, I got a metal horse and I'm a motor cowboy. About, just think about how much work has to go into like, okay, all right, so I'm going to all right use this hand to hold myself up. Now I'm going to unbutton other hand. Oh, oh, there we almost fell. Okay, all right, and there we go. My dicks, ah, oh, they're gone. They're gone. Hey, people whose lawn I'm sleeping on, check it out. Check out my dick. They were arrested for indecent exposure. Uh, about 18 of them were arrested, but that was another problem because the police force in Hollister at the time 
consisted of only seven people total. Oh, my God. Yeah. Tasked with managing a rowdy group of 4,000 bikers. They threatened to tear gas them, although they didn't because they were worried about retaliation because they were so outnumbered. (laughs) Wow. They occasionally arrested people when they could manage to do so, and they did manage to convince the bars to close two hours ahead of time and to refuse some sales, but it didn't matter because the bikers had their own stashes of alcohol. Essentially, they eventually leave at the end of the event, but the town is just almost leveled to the ground like it is insane people described it as just being a huge mess hell on earth it's nuts and in the media circus that follows the ama the american motorcycle uh, association essentially disavows the pissed off bastards and the other people who participated in some of the vandalism and uh, destruction they essentially disavow their actions claiming that they do not reflect the bulk of motorcycle riders they're trying to do damage control for just motorcycles in general and they dub the outlaw bikers one percenters essentially saying that 99 percent of their members are good and the one percent are just bad eggs and the one percent or the ones that were gleefully participating in the events in hollister start to wear that moniker as a badge of honor. Some even add it to their patches. We'll go over patches later. That'll be mostly next episode and episode three. Uh, they're, they're one of the most important pieces of both biker and Girl Scout history. Absolutely. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. This statement currently is not backed up by the AMA. In 2005, they attempted to locate the initial usage of that one percenter moniker, but they were unable to find any news footage or anything linking it to them. But so many people believe that to be the story that it persists. It's basically a legend that will never die is that the AMA dubbed quote unquote outlaw bikers as one percenters. A year later in 1948, infighting within the pissed off bastards leads it to splintering and a new group is formed and a veteran named Otto Friedley is credited with starting a new club after breaking from the pissed off bastards in essentially a bitter feud with a rival gang and they name themselves the Hell's Angels. Now no one knows exactly why they chose that. The name Hell's Angels was a really popular moniker for bomber squadrons in World War I and II. And because most of them were veterans, that's something they would have been familiar with. It was also the title of a 1930 Howard Hughes film about the Royal Flying Corps um, prior to the formation of the gang. And there's also a similarly named gang in the UK, which was kind of more peaceful and would often provide security when needed as opposed to being the stereotypical outlaw bikers. But the confusion around this name would actually lead to one of the most disastrous events in Hell's Angels lore. But that's a story for either the next episode or the one after. It's a ways out. Regardless of where the name came from, the former members of the Pissed Off Bastards became the Hell's Angels of Fontana, California in 1948. Oh, wow. how wonderful. Fontana, baby. Have, you, have either of you been to Fontana? I had, fun story, I did a stand-up gig 
at the VFW in Fontana, full of Hell's Angels. Uh, and they informed me that they colloquially refer to the city as Fontucky. Yep. <laughs> but they were super nice. We had a great time. Yeah, they're an interesting group. Uh, Fontana is one of those places where, like, the memories I have of it are from the trips that my uh, that my stepdad took us on to go watch, like, NASCAR races and shit. So pretty much just, like, every part of Fontana to me is just emanating white trash bullshit. So it's like the South moves west. Yeah, It's Fontucky the South is in California. It's, yeah. it's Fontucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God. Now... From 1949 to 1953, the Hells Angels of Fontana, California, ride and race in AMA sanctions events. So even though they're still considered, quote unquote, one percenters, they're still participating in those events without issue. In 1954, the film The Wild One, starring a young Marlon Brando, comes out. And it was inspired by the Hollister riots. And it creates this kind of mythos around the outlaw biker character and makes it kind of sexy and it perfectly encapsulates this idea of disillusion with the american dream and the attitudes of the younger generation at the time people that were too young to fight in the war but coming of age in the glow of a prosperous post-war america that was frankly kind of boring one of the most famous lines in the movie is what are you rebelling against and Marlon Brando replies, what do you got? <laughs> yeah. I'll rebel against anything. I'll make you a rebellion you can't refuse. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's, it's like he's in the room. You come to me on the day of my motorcycle's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> now, the popularity of the movie actually motivates more people to join motorcycle gangs. And the Hell's Angels grow. They decide that it's time for them to branch out and it's time for them to create additional chapters. And this coincides with kind of a turning point for America, particularly the West Coast. Right about this time, the West Coast was starting to build widespread networks of highways and freeways connecting North and South in California. Now, this allowed a lot of things at this time. This is where we get California's kind of um, like tour, like road trip tourist culture. There's a lot of things in our state where depending on which route you take, they're just tourist traps all along the freeway and crazy stuff to see. And the same goes kind of expanded out along Route 66. Um, And a lot of that is built around this time. The place where I got married is a tourist trap that was built in this era for people to stop next to the brand new freeway. And so this helps out these motorcycle clubs, but most importantly, it helps out the Hells Angels because this allows the chapter in Fontana to form an alliance with another club in San Francisco that they had previously been rivals with. That club is called the Market Street Commandos. And they join forces and become the second chapter of the Hell's Angels. I'm glad that they didn't keep their name because the Market Street Commandos sounds like a, an army built out of like farmer's market employees. Clearly, you've never been to Market Street. Straight up. I just imagine people streaking at the farmer's market. Going commando, if you will. 
Yeah, that's that's closer to Market Street. Uh, There's a yeah. reason that we couldn't keep our name. It's because if we did, we'd have to keep riding with our balls out. It's just so hot. <laughs> it just sticks to the leather. Now, the leader of the Market Street Commandos, now called the Hells Angels, was a man named Frank Sadelec. And he was a photographer for his, like, actual day-to-day job. He was a full-time artist. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, you could be. Uh, Artists aren't tough anymore. Well, they're not paid anymore. And I think that makes a difference. True True facts. Yeah, if you take away an artist's commissions, they will turn into a gang member immediately. Just so quick. Now, he is actually credited with creating the emblem for the Hells Angels, which would become their distinctive jacket patch. The red and white winged death's head and this gives them something that almost no other motorcycle club has at the time branding (laughs) good graphic design good graphic design never underestimate good graphic designs legitimately yes yeah yes it gives them an emblem that people can see from afar and immediately know who they are what they're connected to, and what they're all about. It's a pretty cool logo, honestly. Like, 10 out of 10, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It looks dope. It's definitely in the top 1% of logos. (laughs) Yeah, it's a 1% logo. Um, Now, this allows them to easily recruit and expand even more. And over the next three to four years, they continue to expand and create new chapters. And this expansion basically contains a vacuum for a leader because each of the chapters that they take over has their own leader. And that person no longer, I mean, they become a chapter leader, but there's nobody running the whole shebang until 1956 when a veteran named Sonny Barger would rise up through the ranks, take charge of the entire organization, and change the club forever. And that's where our story is going to end for this week. We do still have an activity that I am very excited about. Are you, did you get us one of those steam-powered motorcycles? I did not. <laughs> but it's time for a game of which of the following with motorcycle club names. Yes! yes! I'm so excited. For those of you who've listened to us for a long time, you might remember that we have had a couple guests, but also have referenced a show called Mean Boys, which sadly is no longer with us as a podcast. R.I.P. Mean Boys forever. But one of their favorite games was a game called Which of the Following, in which I will read you lists of motorcycle club names, and you have to tell me whether or not they are real or fake. So for each section, I'll read you four names. Three of them are real. One of them is fake. And for the last one, it'll be either all real or all fake. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Awesome. The first four, the is that a sex position genre? (laughs) We have the Dirty Wheelers, the Dong Fang, the Ball Koozies, and the Ultimate Fishnet. I think dong fang. I think ball koozies. It's too good. It's an it's an item I could see marketed on Instagram today. <laughs> so you that that's your answer, Andrea. You're saying ball. No, Andrea. You're saying dong fang. Uh, Armando, you're saying ball koozies. Yes. Ball koozies is correct. Uh, yeah. Urban Dictionary defines a ball koozie as the act of submerging one's testicles into a bowl of warm water while your sexual partner inserts a straw into the bowl and blows bubbles. <laughs> 
best part is it makes a noise like a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Are you ready for the next round? Yes. yes. All right. This is the animal edition. So we've got the Thunder Gulls, the Bridge Rats, the Dark Cobras, and the Blackhawks. You say, you say Bridge Rats? Bridge Rats. The Bridge Rats. Oh, that's my favorite one. It's pretty great. So much. The I, bridge rat. I feel like I, the goal one, because the, the thunder goal. No, no, that's there's gotta be. There was the Market Street Commandos, which yeah, they gotta know that means going with no underwear. Um, all right, the bridge rats is my favorite, so I'm gonna say they're good. The goals one did sound pretty ridiculous. I think it's Blackhawks because I don't think they'd get the reference, so I'm gonna go Blackhawk. I'm gonna go the goals. Andrea is correct. Thunder Goals is fake. Blackhawks is real. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Because remember, this, this is when they're still calling them Indian motorcycles. So referencing Native American names was yeah, probably yeah, that's a fair. big mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought the Thunder Goals sounds like something that like it existed for two years. Yeah. Like a cool beach motorcycle club. The, the <laughs> Thunder Goals. Beach cruisers. In fairness, gulls are the most annoying and loud of seabirds. So that's if a why I picked it. It was the thunder gulls. I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. In Spanish, by the way, we pronounce it thunder gulls. All right. Next section is oogie spooky. So Ooh. we've got the broomstick riders, the, <laughs> the warlocks, the jackals, and the straight satans. <laughs> First of all, you got let's you can't mention the straight Satans without also mentioning the gay Satans. Get out of my brain because I when I was originally writing, I thought about making and this is going to reveal that the straight Satans are real. But <laughs> uh, I thought about making the fake one, the straight Satans and the gay Satins. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to make it hard for you to guess. We've got the slippery chairs. We've got the broom riders. Yeah, the so slippery you got chairs. The, the broomstick riders, the warlocks, and the jackals. Broomstick riders. Yeah, I'm going to go broomstick riders. That is real. What? Whoa. The warlocks right. is fake. Damn. I that was my that instinct. Was a real one. That was my instinct. Now, here's the thing these are classic motorcycle club names. There have been hundreds of thousands since. But these are the classic ones from like the 1950s. So there may have been a more recent Warlock one, but yeah. I couldn't find it. What if it's a motorcycle club D&D group and instead of doing drug running, they just get really into their mages? Mister, I'm going to give you one chance and you better roll a dexterity saving throw right now <laughs> or we're going to throw down. All right. Are you ready for the next round? Yes. yes. All right. So this is cryptids and deities. Ooh. Oh, so and this is one is fake? One is fake. Okay. So, so first we have the Roaring Yahweh's. <laughs> we've got the Bluff Gurus. Okay. Okay. I feel like we've covered a lot of bluffing gurus on our yeah. show before. We've got the Bluff Gurus. We've got the Minnow Tires. We've got the Manticores. And we've got the Eye of Ra. Oh. Manticores are dope as shit. Manticores yeah. is dope as fuck. I would make a, a cult podcast motorcycle jacket and of put that Manticores. on it. Manticores yeah. are sick. I feel like, what was the last one? The Eye of Ra. The Eye of Ra. I feel like it's the Eye of Ra. Yeah, I think that's the one that's not. That is real. What? Yes. Uh, minnow tires is fake. That makes Damn. sense. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. pretty. It was too good of a pun. I it was guessed. too good of a pun. 
All right. Are you ready for the last round? All real, all fake. Yes. So yeah. this one is either they are all real or they or... are all fake. Oh, okay. God. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yes. yes. Gravel rash. <laughs> the ultimate scalp. The head knockers and grounded rubber. All real. Oh, God. They all sound like different STDs you get for fucking a motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Yeah, my exhaust pipe's got tail rash. What is it? Road rash? Gravel rash. The ultimate scalp. The head knockers and grounded rubber. Head knockers sounds like you're just motorboating a motorcycle. It sounds like... It sounds like... It sounds like you hit a bump too big and your balls have just engorged and now they're just knockers, big head-shaped knockers. Um, I'm going to go all real. Those are all real. God. That's pretty. Isn't that crazy? And here's the thing. I made five rounds of this game and didn't get to... I didn't get to include names like Mutants Go or (laughs) Blazing Bandits. Cartoon Network show. Yeah, or The Punishers. Or um, Sons of Templars was another one. Okay. Yeah, lots of stuff that I... Road Crew, uh, the Curvy Riders. Oh, that's Ooh. about. Yeah. Brains with a Z trust. Brains trust. Um, I like that you basically just had a, a group in there just called the Thick Boys. The Thick Boys. One is the Usual Suspects, which that's was a pretty, pretty great good. one. That one, actually, it starts out good, but then you find out that every member is just Kevin Spacey, and right. then it gets really upsetting. <laughs> really upsetting. There's also one called the Saddle Sores. There's Ooh, yeah, gross. Yikes. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. There's a group called the Teslas, because okay. they're named after Nikolai Tesla, so they were just a bunch of nerds. And then there's Hell also yeah, one dude. called the Heat Caesars. They're all a bunch of nerds. We figured this yeah. out, right? Yeah. This episode has taught us in context that motorcycle dudes are just metallic horse girls. That's all they are. And that is how you should treat them from here on out. They're nerds that'll throw a punch. Okay, can I... Oh, this is a weird sort of aside, but it is related. First of all, have either of you ever ridden on a motorcycle? I've no. ridden on a dirt bike. I've never yeah. ridden on a motorcycle. So my dad had a motorcycle growing up, and he also had a dangly earring with a cross on it, but I digress. Uh, (laughs) But I have been picked up from school on a motorcycle and had people be like, who is this older man picking you up? Like, that's my dad. Uh." Is your dad George Michael? (laughs) (laughs) I went to school in Milwaukee, which is home of Harley Davidson. And so because we were an art and design school, we would regularly have partnerships with Harley Davidson for like school projects or competitions etc and one of the Harley Davidson competitions was actually a helmet design competition oh cool so I entered but what I entered with is I had like an artistic helmet which was essentially just antlers and I photographed me with antlers as like a deer person and my entry was removed because motorcyclists, the symbol of deer is so controversial to motorcyclists yeah. because it kills so many motorcyclists mm-hmm. every year. And my whole them. point was that yeah. kind of that is that like as a woman with antlers, like this idea of like protection. So I had this whole phase of I was making artwork that was about copying animal protections 
for women mm-hmm. and the ideal of sort of like guarding ourselves and making ourselves so we could just be in the world and not have to worry about constantly being hurt and assaulted by men. Uh, but a whole group of adult men was so upset at the idea of a woman being a deer that they removed my entry. <laughs> this is so, a thing, though. They deers yes. kill more bikers than almost any like that's one of the most common way for motorcycle riders to die apart from just general crashes is hitting deer. Yeah. It's yeah, well, the huge worst part thing. is the helmet that won was just a MAGA hat that they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the other thing, too. I want you to remember for the section of the Hells Angels history that we went through today, uh, helmets were not required. Yeah. Yeah. At this and time. The thing is, so like the, a lot of like the safety and a lot of like the motorcycle wear that became cool has a lot to do with safety. So the like we kind of briefly covered wearing leather. Um, that protects you from the road rash. Like my dad, when I was a kid, had a lot of rules about you always wear closed-toed shoes. You always double-check to make sure your laces are tied because it can get caught in things. Like there, you can't, you know, you don't wear shorts on a motorcycle. You always wear long sleeves, even in the heat of summer. And he would also often wear like gloves so that if you do crash or if something, because if you're holding the handles, if a bug hits you or a piece of gravel hits you at that speed, it can cause pretty intense damage to your body. So a lot of the things that motorcyclists wear that are like, oh, this is just cool or like you think you're a badass do have a practical element to them. So I just kind of wanted to like bring up that practical side of it so that as we're listening, you know, people can kind of consider how these things are both functional, but also part of the culture and the group. There's also I did not realize and this is not the case with classic motorcycle jackets, but the more common ones that we're used to seeing, like the modern ones are multiple pieces where you've got your your basically your vest and that's where your patches and stuff go and then you have a couple on your sleeves but the patches that go on your actual vest portion you don't get until you patch in so we're going to cover a lot of that in the next episode pretty crazy this is yeah. super interesting and i love every part yeah. of it yeah it's really cool um hey if you if you are listening to this episode uh and you are a member of our patreon for which we do our bonus episodes called the speculation zone um, an idea that I just had would be to cover potentially uh, the life and times of one evil Knievel, the king of motorcycle culture, or at least one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's something you'd want to listen to, let us know. Hit us up. That'd be that'd be really fun to do. Yeah. And this episode, uh, just like every episode, is is sponsored by um, Salmon Jello. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want ever? Do you want to gross out the taste buds in your mouth, but also be grossed out by the consistency in your mouth? Then let me offer you the world's grossest food. <laughs> Salmon Jello offers a unique experience <laughs> of just being grossed out in every form. It really, truly is with every single sense that my body has: sight, even sound, just jiggling it, smell, taste, feel. All of it is terrible. I can't think of a worse thing that is technically edible. I, I feel like uh, I know for a fact that there is one of our Facebook group members who is going to post so many pictures of those come Monday when this goes up. Oh, the God. Jellos? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Jesus. Ugh. Well, okay, well. Megan, don't actually- let me down. <laughs> 
In actuality, our episode is sponsored, as always, by our wonderful, beautiful Patreon donors. Uh, this episode in particular is brought to you in part by Patreon donor Michelle S. Michelle S. And the S is for Salmon Jello. <laughs> She's from... It's a family name. It has nothing to do with the food. It's actually um, uh, Salmongelo. <laughs> Salmongelo. It's, uh, I don't know. If you say Salmon Jello quick enough, it sounds like Salmonella. Uh, a little bit. A Pretty little, sure you that's to... an easy way to... I mean, you can't get Salmonella from fish. But if you made like a chicken Jello... Oh, please never. Please no. <laughs> I I hate it. I gotta go. I oh my god hey do you want to if you want to send me um the wildest jello you could possibly make uh if you whatever it is you're gonna regret asking that (laughs) go out and look for the wildest jello or send me if bonus points if you can make it yourself but if you find something in the wild i want you to send it to me too um you can send me crazy jellos like um salmon jello is pretty insane so i feel like that's the bar it has to be weirder than salmon jello what we're looking for are aspics and salads. Yeah. I just want, just be real weird with it. You can send those to me on a social media, on Instagram and Twitter at Mondo Jello stuff. Um, <laughs> no, it's Mondo does stuff. M-A-N-D-O does stuff. Hey guys, if you want to send me your creative motorcycle club names and what the core beliefs of your motorcycle club would be, I do want to hear about it. If you want to do a D&D spinoff, if you want to do a drag-themed <laughs> spinoff, if you are a bunch of crafters who knit while you ride, I want to hear about it. Send that to me on all the things at Sundress Comic. And also check out my art on Instagram at Andrea Gazetta. Uh, I have a giveaway going on right now, and that'll be good till Thursday. Um, and you could win some free art. So go check that out. And I'll also have a book coming out soon. Listen here, buddy. This is why you don't mess with the prance and unicorns. <laughs> if you have an idea for a cult podcast, motorcycle club, <laughs> Or a Patch? hookup to make sweet ass patches. Yeah, yes. oh, hell patches. Yeah. Hell yeah. Let us know so we can patch in to our club. Yes, that's something that we got. We definitely have to make. Fuck yes. Chanel patches, baby. So um, I know that we talked about patching in and out at some point in a very old episode, and I could not for the life of me remember which one it was and why. Because And I'm talking like back in the Marie days. It was forever yeah. ago. And I don't think we had enough people listening at the time to send us patch names and ideas, but I think we do now. So, like, yeah. give us them patch ideas so we can patch in. There is yeah. a, there is a less than 0% chance. There is a very high chance that if you send us an awesome patch design, you can be, uh, we'll make you a design, we'll make your design, we'll vectorize it, we'll turn it into a patch, and you can be a part of cult podcast history forever. There you go. <laughs> Oh, my God. Please. Send, where can they send that page? They can send that to me at Paige Wesley on Twitter or at Rampage Wesley on Instagram. And we've also got some really awesome news. Um, we've plugged it before. We also plugged it a little bit at the uh, in the show before the show. But we are going to be on a Rooster Teeth panel for RTX on True Crime Podcast. Woohoo! It's going to be so fun. 
It's so fucking amazing. I'm going to be doing a panel with uh, two of my very best friends, (gasps) y'all. And then uh, Chris Damaris, who was part of uh, um, Good Morning from Hell and his other podcast show, uh, Black Black Box Box Down, Down. as well as Gus from Rooster Teeth, who is somebody that I have been entertained by (laughs) for for quite a few number of years. It's uh, it's actually pretty huge for me and his podcast, uh, Red Web. Um, we will be there discussing a bunch of uh, things pertaining to running a true crime podcast, but this is actually where we need some help from y'all. Um, if you can send us questions that you have about what goes into making a true crime podcast, um, like any question that you've ever wanted to ask us about the behind the scenes things, about the process of making it, about anything that interests you about what we do. Please send us those questions this week. Um, That RTX panel is going to be on September 18th at 3.30 p.m. Central Time, which I believe is 1.30 Pacific Standard Time. And then who cares about the East Coast? Um, Go suck my jello. Um, No, no, please definitely come. Uh, You can RSVP for this uh, by going to rtxevent.com. It's going to be a lot of fun. I cannot wait um, to be a part of this, and I cannot wait to read your questions. You can send all of those uh, by putting RTX question in the subject line um, and send us an email to cultpodcastshow at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Instagram at cultpodcast. Or Twitter at cultpodcastshow. And please do that as soon as possible so that way we can have your questions and read them out loud on the panel. It's going to be an amazing time. I'm so, 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 so excited for it. That website, again, to RSVP is rtxevent.com. And if you have classic jello molds that you would like to send me for my <laughs> burgeoning collection, you could send them to 3756 West Avenue 40, Suite K, number 237. Like the Shining, Los Angeles, California, 90065. And I think I'm going to say don't drink and race and waggle your dick at the same time. No <laughs> one can multitask like that. That's Honestly, a lot. Honestly, if you could. Hey, look at this. Coppers it, and I wiggles guess. like it's jello. Ha ha. Ha ha. The dirty wheelers strike again. I don't <laughs> think it's supposed to be that flexible all the time. <laughs> and then I'm going to say don't drink the Kool Aid. Bye. Bye.